0: Hi, friend. Welcome back to The Everyday Evangelist. I'm Jessica Dudek, Director of Evangelization at Christ the King Catholic Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and this is your landing ground for practical tips and tools for sharing the faith in the day-to-day. Today, we're kicking up a series about finding faith in the midst of navigating sexual brokenness, and I want to give us a framework for entering into this that might be a little counterintuitive than how we've culturally talked about brokenness in the past. And what I mean by that is that before we launch into this series, I want us to stop and connect with our own places of woundedness and where we ourselves have experienced brokenness in our sexuality. Because I think that it isn't necessarily a lack of understanding that keeps us from being healing evangelists in this arena, but maybe actually a fear of understanding. Because when we stop and look at our own wounds, our own needs, and even understand how we ourselves could commit grave sin, we break down the us-versus-them mentality that so often exists, and we understand that there but by the grace of God go I. So to give you an understanding of where we're going in this series, I've had the great pleasure of connecting with Desert Stream Ministries, as well as my own colleague, Amy Godfrey. And we're going to talk about some heavy-hitting subject matter like finding hope in Jesus Christ while navigating experience or experiencing same-sex attraction. We're going to talk about finding healing when facing sexual addiction. And we're going to unpack the theology and the perils of in vitro fertilization and artificial insemination. At the end of this, my hope and prayer for you is that you actually feel seen and heard, uh, but known in a loving way. My hope is not necessarily to expose evil and put a spotlight on it, but rather for us to have a compassionate gaze towards our brothers and sisters, and for ourselves to come one step closer to Jesus Christ and experiencing one level deeper of healing. The truth is, is that none of us are untouched by the brush of sexual brokenness. And this is because we are inherently gendered beings and we can't escape our sexuality. And at the end of the day, the devil is the one who hates sex. He's the one who hates gender. He's the one who hates relationships and who wants to drive us apart. And he does this by attacking our sexual identity. And this has happened just in every generation, every time, and every season and generation seems to have a different focus, but always the same root. It always goes back to destroying the relationship between man and woman, and even destroying our relationships with our own identity, and with all of that, wrecking our relationship with God. So let's go back to the very beginning. When God made man, it says in Genesis that he saw a man and said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Well, that word for good actually means complete. So God's looking at a picture of a world with one gender and saying it's incomplete, And then when he says, I'll make him a suitable helper, that term for suitable helper, the root of that word actually means God's gift of himself. Then when he makes Eve from Adam's rib, that was written so that those hearing and reading that story would see that as a symbol of equality. And then even Adam saying, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh is a statement of full unity between the two genders and full equality. So really, looking at that scripture, what we see is God saying that the world is incomplete without both man and woman, and that God gives of himself, and that he makes us to be equal and in right, holy relationship with one another. And sex is designed as the gift of oneself because God sees making us gendered beings as him giving himself to us. So therefore, when we have that right relationship between man and woman, and we see the holiness and the dignity and the beauty of gender, we see the face and the image of God. From that, of course, comes the structure of family, which builds up society, which regardless of vocation, sets us in relationship with one another and in relationship with God. And so this is what we see the enemy attacking time after time, generation after generation in whatever form he chooses to hit at any point in time, always to wreck that unity of humanity, to destroy the unity with God. We see that the devil attacks family through divorce. He attacks innocence through assault. He attacks love through violence and the gift of self through trafficking and pornography. He attacks the equality that God created between man and woman with sexism. And right now we see this odd thing of actually a cultural swing that really falls on itself where simultaneously the devil is trying to erase gender identity, but yet say that you can identify as a gender that you're not born with. And so again, it all goes back to that same root of wrecking those relationships and wrecking our oneness with the Lord. So this cultural dynamic isn't new, but in every season and in every generation, it's likely to be new how we need to respond. So let's take a glance really quickly on how we often respond and actually the really negative stereotypes that follow that. Oftentimes in evangelization—and you've probably heard me say this before on the podcast—we get these pendulum swings. And what's interesting about vices is that the opposite of a vice is actually another vice, and the virtue and the holy path is going to land somewhere in the middle. And this is actually because in order to find freedom in Christ and truth in life, we have to step into both death and life. We have to walk the journey with Jesus to the cross into resurrection. But unfortunately, in our humanity, we tend to have a knee-jerk reaction, and that knee-jerk reaction tends to be one-sided and incomplete in the picture of life and death. So the two knee-jerk reactions I'm going to emphasize are a mentality of condemnation and a mentality of what I call the no-judgment zone. So condemnation would be that really negative stereotype where Christians are identifying people as their sin and forcing change upon them calling, them, calling people terrible names and really pushing towards change. And I want to give us a break here, give us a little bit of credit that I think at the heart of the condemnation mentality is just a fear of hell. I think we're deeply, deeply afraid of our brothers and sisters losing salvation and not having a relationship with Christ. And that is a good thing. We're supposed to have that holy fear because without that, we're selfish in our pursuit of the Lord. But fear is not always a holy motivator. And if we get wrapped up in that emotion and that fear, or also the anger That's another element of it, is we get really angry about how the devil is attacking sexuality. And that's also a righteous anger, but any emotion unchecked can lead us into unhealthy reactions. And so a tone of condemnation, what it really does is it identifies the person as their sin, and it also forces change without giving the person an encounter with Jesus and an experience of his love first. Fear and anger uh, in and of themselves point to deeper problems, but they're not healthy motivators simply on their own. So when we experience that anger, we experience that fear, the invitation is to pause and to look more inward and to ask ourselves really where that motivation is coming from. What are we afraid of? And then what's the healthy step moving forward? But the flip side of condemnation is the no judgment zone mentality. And that's, that's where one person looks at an issue that's being brought up and they say, well, don't judge that. You don't know the person. You don't know their story. And it's fine. And the danger of the no judgment zone mentality is that we're not inviting people into healing. We're really bypassing an opportunity of evangelization, an opportunity of discipleship. But again, let's cut a break here. The heart of the no judgment zone is actually to not make the biggest deal of someone's sin and to not use sin as a reason to ostracize them from Christian society. And so that heart, again, is in a good place. You know, when you're not wanting to judge someone else's behavior, the hope is that they don't feel separate from Christian community, but that they actually have a good place to belong and that they can receive the love of God. But the love of God is made perfect, or the strength of God is made perfect in our weakness. And Christ calls us to life through entering into his death. And he never wants us to remain stuck in a pattern that is damaging us and damaging the world. So let's splice and dice really quickly the difference between judgment and condemnation. Jesus is the only one who is allowed to judge, which means he's the only one who's allowed to sentence. He's the only one who is really able to, t- to determine what actions in our life brought us to that place of sin to even know truly how culpable we are. And as Catholics, let's remember that we send ourselves to hell. And so with this, we understand that we don't have the right to judge a person because we don't know their backstory, we don't know their context, we don't know what has set them up to be in the position that they're in. However, that said, it is of extreme importance that we can identify the difference between right and wrong. Without being able to say that something is evil, that something is sinful, that something is wrong, then we don't have a path of life. I mean, imagine if we went to the doctor horribly sick, and he said, oh, I'm not going to judge your illness. Everyone gets sick sometimes. Everyone's got different varieties of illness, and you're, you're fine. You're like, well, actually, no, I'm not fine. I'm dying, and I need something to heal me, something to bring me forward. And so as Christians, we are called to be able to determine holiness, but that's not the same thing as condemning someone's future. So the framework that I'm inviting us into instead is a deeply empathetic approach that actually puts ourselves in a place of need first. And this is because we know that in our Catholic faith, we can't give what we haven't received. So we know that we have to receive the love of the Lord before we can give it to someone else. But with that, we can't lead somebody where we ourselves have not gone. If we haven't been willing to go to the deep, dark places and the deep recesses of our soul and our brokenness and let Jesus shine his purifying light in there, we actually can't expect that of somebody else. The truth is, is that we're not hypocrites in the church for being sinners. We're actually just authentic by recognizing that we're sinners, constantly in need of repentance. However, we do run the risk of stepping into a more hypocritical nature if we refuse to look at our patterns of sin, or if we refuse to step into a place of healing to deal with that at its root. And where does this idea come from, that we have to look at our own sinfulness first to help someone else do that? Well, I didn't come up with it. Actually, Jesus was the one who inspired this. And I want to encourage us to look at the story of the woman caught in adultery. Now, what happens is the Pharisees are actively trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to trap him and they're trying to use the law against him. So they find a woman who's committing adultery and they drag her to Jesus publicly in front of people, tell her, tell Jesus her sin, and then ask if they should stone her. And Christ's response is he actually bends down and starts drawing in on the ground. And we don't know what he's drawing. He could be doodling for all we know. We Actually, we don't know. We just know that he stops. He looks away from her. He looks away from the crowd. And he humbles himself down into the dirt. And then after the situation has diffused a little bit, He stands up and he tells the crowd, which is now the Pharisees and a whole group of people listening in, and he says, whoever is the first of you without sin, you can be the first to throw the stone. And then he gets down and starts doodling in the ground again, and everyone one by one walks away. And at the end, he says to her, you know, he asks her where her accusers are, and she tells him that they've all left. And he says, they do not condemn you, neither do I. Go your way and sin no more. So, so many things are happening here. Now, first of all, the Pharisees are coming from a very dark place emotionally and motivationally. They are trying to trap Jesus and trick him in all of this. But the one thing they are doing right, if we give them a little bit of credit, is they're bringing her to Jesus. They do see a problem and they're taking somebody and bringing her to Christ, but they're making a show of her shame. And Jesus' response is to humble himself. He signifies even in that moment that his response to our sin is for him to be laid low and for him to enter into the dirt. And even there, he represents that he's going to die for our sins. But really, I think by calling the crowd into recognizing their own sinfulness is he's inviting them into a place of discipleship. Because when we stop and look at our own brokenness, we know deep down that sin begets sin. Patterns of sin form from something that first happened to us. And so if we stop and we look inward and we recognize this is where I'm broken and this is what got me there, then we start to see sin as a reflection of need and pain. And when we do that, then we see a path of healing for the person. And if we can empathize by recognizing our own journey of healing, then we can take a guess or at least have a heart of compassion to step into what that person needs in order to be healed. He's inviting the crowds to look away from sinner or non-sinner into being wounded healers, joining with one another on the journey and coming together into relationship with Christ. And what Christ does is he doesn't opt the no-judgment-zone mentality. He doesn't say to the crowd, oh, because you're sinners, you don't have a right to call her out. That's actually not what he does because he does call her into fullness of life and out of that place of sin. But first, he makes her one with the crowd. He unites the community. They can no longer identify her as someone extremely different from themselves. And everyone, the invitation for everyone in that place is to find freedom in Jesus. He removes condemnation from her. He heals her and forgives her in that moment and gives her a vision of a new life going forward. Now I think it's so significant that Jesus gets down in the ground at that point because she's being publicly shamed. And so he actually makes himself lower than her. See, When Jesus sees our brokenness and when Jesus sees our shame and our pain, his response is actually to make himself lower than that. He went to the place of death so that we didn't have to, and he's experienced the gravity of all of our sin. I had this moment. This is a bit of a tangent. I was going to confession one day, and I was kind of nervous to go to confession Confession is such a beautiful sacrament. I love that sacrament. The Lord always pours out his grace upon me, and I've experienced so much healing in that way. But I was having a day where I was a little afraid, and I sat there in line for the confessional talking to the Lord, and I said, Jesus, I don't really want to do this today. I'm embarrassed to walk in there and tell you what I've done, and I don't want to own it in myself. I don't want to name it to someone else. I I don't want to tell you. And it's a silly prayer because God knows our hearts. He knows my whole story anyway. Nothing I'm going to say is going to shock Jesus. But I, I heard the voice of the Lord in that moment. And he says, like, Jessica, you don't have to be afraid. I already experienced it on the cross. Christ chose to enter into all of our sin. He bore the weight of all of humanity and all of our brokenness so that there's no shock factor with Jesus because he felt it. He felt it physically, he felt it emotionally, he felt it spiritually. And in the same way that Jesus was in dire need on the cross, when he sees our sin, he sees a person in need. And so that's our invitation in evangelization. Christ wants to destroy the us versus them mentality. See, the devil creates that division between humanity, which is, of course, the first thing he did with the fall of man, is pit men and women against one another, make them ashamed of themselves, afraid of, you know, even their own identity, and break those relationships. And God calls us into holy unity with one another. God is relational. And so he heals through relationships. And it's such a beautiful undoing of the work of the devil, because particularly in sexual brokenness, the enemy uses relationships to harm us. So then by that token, the Lord wants to use relationships to heal us. So let's talk a little about what happens when we do do that hard work and we pause and we look inward and we identify our own places of brokenness. Well, first off, like we've been saying, that sort of divisive us versus them mentality has to go away. And actually, the Lord invites us into a place first of healing. Not all of us have had opportunity in our life to step into that place of healing, but we all need it. And we don't all need it because we've had dramatic, jarring traumatic experiences. But like we said before, nobody goes unscathed in this conversation. The enemy finds ways to attack each and every person in regards to their sexuality even if you've never been traumatized or had any violations to your body or anything like that, the devil even gets sneaky and comes into scrupulosity, making us afraid of ourselves, afraid of our sexuality, and living in a constant fear that we're sinning. Even that qualifies as sexual brokenness. But what often happens just in life is that moments unchecked turn into actions Actions unchecked turn into patterns. Patterns unchecked leach into other areas of our life. And so oftentimes then in healing, we have to progressively go backwards. There's often one small moment, even in as early as childhood, where unholy seeds get planted. You know, the scripture talks about the Lord plants wheat and an enemy comes in and plants a weed and the two grow up together. And it isn't until the wheat bears fruit that you can actually separate the weed from the wheat. So oftentimes in the journey of our own sexual healing, it isn't until we see some fruit of the weed that we even know what we're dealing with. But the Lord's grace is abundant and has journeyed with us all through our life to get to that point where we actually know the sin we're facing. And so what Jesus does is he invites us into a place of very intimate healing. He knows our journey. He knows where we've been sinned against. And he wants to bring us into a place of forgiving those that sinned against us, receiving Christ's forgiveness for our own sin, and stepping away from the pride that would keep us from forgiving ourselves. And then when we do this, we can take a gander at what someone else might need when they're facing extreme brokenness. Empathy doesn't project pain. Empathy just meets in that point of relationship. And empathy also knows its boundaries. Because when you can empathize a little bit with someone's experience, you also know where you can't understand and where you need to invite them to tell you more. So let me give you an example just from my own life of what this has looked like. And I want to note, too, that this isn't always fun. You know, sexuality is such a hot topic, and it's even fun to be like, ooh, we're going to talk about sex. But actually doing that hard work of looking at your life and identifying pain can be grueling. And so let me just say right now, don't go at this alone. And particularly if you've been traumatized within the past year or two years, particularly don't do this without bringing in a licensed counselor. Bring along a spiritual director as well. Bring along a friend, but don't do this alone. And I didn't do this alone. But let me get back and tell you a little bit about my experiences and then how that has shaped me in evangelization on this topic. For me, my first kind of exposure to sexuality actually linked sex with violence. And I have this theory, this is just a theory, so take it with a grain of salt or pillar of salt, but I have this theory that The devil knows the lies that he's tried to sow into our lives. And I think he tries to prove them true. And I think that while the Lord's plan is always for life and healing, you know, the devil wants to destroy us, and so I think he whispers a lie and then shouts the reinforcement and tries to send it over and over again. So for me, the earliest link, um, combined sex and violence, and then the first several men who came into my life were extremely aggressive, took a tone of dominance, and tried very, very, very hard to get me in bed. Now, in my life, really by the grace of God, I was able to avoid any situation that could have made me a full-on victim, but there were still several ways that this damaged me. It actually was one of those things that made me feel very bad about myself. Even without crossing boundaries or being you know, aggressively violated or anything like that, there was still a sort of disassociation from my femininity, a desire to hide in that regard, a profound anxiety about relationships. For years I couldn't go on a date without having a panic attack. And there was confusion in all of this as well, and a question of, you know, what does trust look like? How could I, how can I trust somebody? And so for me, even without having a very traumatic experience, there were still levels of perilous, tumultuous emotions that tore me away from other people, tore me away from God, and tore me away from my relationship with myself. And it came to a point where I had a spiritual director who actually called this out of me and encouraged me into pursuing deep healing from this. And I didn't go at this alone. You know, I brought in counselors at times where that's what was needed. I brought my spiritual director along for the journey. And I started bringing close, trustworthy friends into this experience of healing and trusting God each step of the way with how he wanted to heal me and what he wanted to heal me from. And I didn't start with even knowing the root of what had caused this. I first had to deal with that base anxiety and let Jesus take me back 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 even to those root experiences that built up in me. And I don't know if on this side of heaven if we'll all see complete healing you know but i i do know that i'm i'm not the fearful person i was a decade ago and i'm not the woman anymore who wants to hide and runs from relationships or you know runs from you know having a positive self image anymore there's tremendous healing that jesus has brought in my life you know before this i couldn't pursue relationships it's not the reality for me anymore so now So many times in life, I've met so many people who've been violently assaulted and gone through things that are tremendously worse than I've been through. And again, empathy is not a projection. Empathy knows what it can relate to and what it can't relate to. And while I have not been horrifically violated the way that other people have been, I can understand that fear, that confusion, that desire to hide, the inability to trust, as well as the pendulum swing when through trauma people actually rush to relationship because they can't face the darkness of it all. And so, empathy lets me know that there's also hope for this person because if I can experience those emotions and I can be healed through Jesus Christ, I know that while they're experiencing that trauma that they too can be healed through Jesus Christ. And even though I don't know everything of their story and everything they're ever going to need, I see the impact or even the choices they're making now and I know it's coming from pain. And I know that at the heart of that is a need and I can see that need and I can love that person. And friend, I am not saying I'm perfect in this. Please recognize that I'm not saying that because I've faced some of my stuff that I face every situation with dignity and grace. That's not true. I need the Holy spirit to be continually purifying me and continually giving me his heart for the person. But I do know from my own experience that embracing empathy brings me to care for the person behind the sin. So, what do we do? And where do we go from here? Well, we know the evils that surround us outside. And the first step is to look inside, to look inward. So, let me reinforce don't go at this alone. Bring someone along in, maybe a close friend, a spouse, a spiritual director, but take some time and actually ask the Holy Spirit to guide your understanding to your own areas of brokenness and wounding. From there, allow yourself to go deeper. Ask the Spirit to guide you. Do this in counseling. Pray through it with the spiritual director and ask the Lord to even show you the root. And I'm decently sure that that root is actually someone who first harmed you. And also, you know, that, that might have not even been a person. It might have not even been active or intentional. You could have been harmed by something that you saw in the media. You could have seen a clip of a movie, seen the cover of a magazine at the grocery store, or heard someone say something in passing. Even something that small could have planted a seed that could have damaged your understanding of your own sexuality or of others. A link could have been formed in even a very small moment that could be damaging you still today. But the beauty of uncovering those roots is you get to take away their power. And the beauty of forgiving the one who hurt you means you get to actively break off their impact on your life. So first, look inward. First, go personal and ask the Lord to guide you into where you've been broken and where you've been hurt. The next thing to do as you enter into this healing, that healing is going to mean forgiveness, um, that healing is going to mean recognizing where this has played out in your life today. And as you recognize where it's playing out in your life today, there may be other steps that you have to take. There may be adjustments that you need to make in your relationships with others. You may become aware of another sin pattern that has birthed out of that sexual brokenness and need to give some attention and healing care there. And so don't expect this to be an overnight experience, but also don't let it be a barrier to evangelization. You know, the scripture says, we mentioned earlier, that in our weakness, he is strong. God is strong. And so when we find those areas of need, the more we let Jesus into that, the more we're inviting him to using us in the midst of that. So as you step into your own healing journey, my next tip for you is to pay attention to what really bothers you in the culture. What really makes you angry? And where are you most concerned about the future based on what you see today? And I'm going to bet that whatever is bugging you the most is somehow tied to your story. So once you start doing that inner work, do the outer work. Say, what really you know, freaks me out in our culture around sexuality today? And then see if there's a link. Because if there is, then that means that God's been discipling you to reach that need. So the invitation there is gonna be twofold. First, go inward and pray. Seek the Lord on this. Pray with other people on this. And then start reaching out. And reaching out is gonna look different for each of us. You may have someone in your life that you can begin to extend pastoral care to, um, or you may feel like you're kind of regimented just to social media. And I wanna encourage you that as you reach out, reach out in love and empathy. And the Lord may invite you to start sharing some of your story first, which is usually very, very good in evangelization. Because when we do that, when we come forward vulnerably, we show the world that we're trustworthy. And authenticity is healing for those who are outside of the church because it lets them know that they're welcome in that place and that they belong. So friends, just to recap today, the devil is the one who hates sex. He's the one who hates relationships and wants to destroy it because in right relationships, in owning our gender, we see the face of God. And so behind every evil work that's around us today is the enemy really, truly trying to destroy us. But the Lord's invitation is always to life. The Lord's invitation is to healing. And that healing begins with us. The call first is to look inward and identify our own places of need and let Jesus into that. Because then we can empathize, then we can care, then we can envision the path of healing for someone else and invite them onto that. We move away from condemnation, we move away from ignoring sin and into a place of holistic holy care for another person. Jesus humbles himself down into the dirt when he meets the woman caught in adultery. And then equalizes her with the crowd, invites her into his love, and he changes her life. So let's do the same. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord. Let him remove the us versus them mentality. Give someone that experience of God's grace and love. Receive Jesus' grace and love ourselves and lead into new birth, new life with the Lord. In all things, lean on the Lord and rely on the Holy Spirit. Amen.